The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the edition, The Spectator's look at some of the most intriguing and important issues within the week's magazine. I'm Lara Prendergast. This week, polls now show a majority of Scots support independence. So how has First Minister Nicola Sturgeon persuaded the nation despite the shortcomings of her government? Plus, does spending more money on overseas aid really mean that we care more? And finally, have we all fallen victim to inappropriate casualness? First up, Alex Massey writes in this week's cover piece about the Sturgeon paradox. Why, he asks, does her popularity keep growing, even though she has failed to deliver on education, health and COVID-19? To discuss, Alex joins me now alongside Andrew Wilson, former SMP shadow finance spokesperson and founder of Charlotte Street Partners. Alex, you say in your piece this week that before coronavirus, Nicola Sturgeon's position looked a little bit shaky, but not too bad. But the, the virus has changed everything. Can you, can you explain to listeners how she's now seen in Scotland? Well, I mean, Nicola Sturgeon has had a very good year. There is no point in denying that. Indeed, Douglas Ross, the new leader of the Scottish Conservative Party, you know, made the point the other day that when it comes to dealing with the virus, in terms of her communication, her ability to inspire and instil confidence in the people, that sense that the government has a plan, knows what it's doing, is realistic about the scale of the challenges here. You know, as Douglas Ross said... Nicola Sturgeon has done much, much better at that than Boris Johnson has. And that's a view shared across most of the Scottish Conservative Party. And as a result of that, you know, Nicola Sturgeon's approval ratings, which were always high, have hit new heights. And to the extent that you have a significant number of Labour supporters and even a significant minority of Conservative supporters in Scotland who think Nicola Sturgeon has done a good job this year. And obviously that is then contrasted with the perceived failings of the British government in terms of dealing with the coronavirus emergency. And the contrast between Nicola Sturgeon and Boris Johnson feeds into the constitutional debate. And it is one of the reasons, I think, why you have seen across this summer and this autumn, you now have a string of it's about 15 different opinion polls, all of which put support for independence in the majority. And, you know, there's an election to the Scottish Parliament next year and a year ago the opposition parties here in Scotland were hoping that they would be able to deny the SNP a majority. They were hoping that the next Scottish Parliament would not have a pro-independence majority. Well times change and it looks now as though there will be a pro-independence majority in the next Scottish Parliament whether that's an SNP majority on its own or the SNP plus the Greens remains to be seen. But it means that, obviously, therefore, the national question, the future of the United Kingdom, is front and centre once again. And so it's not just the virus, it's not just Nicola Sturgeon, but put all of these things together and you have a situation where nationalism is in the ascendancy once again. Andrew, do you agree that the pandemic has been politically helpful for Sturgeon? Well, I think she would be at pains and has been at pains not to make political capital or even to engage on sort of comparative stuff. I think the discussion on the MAR programme, which many pointed to, was was really about 
that and an unease with comparing performance, if you like, in inverted commas. But I think, I mean, I, I should say, you know, a beautifully written piece, as always, by Alec. And I think The Spectator is is right to focus in on this question in, in, in this edition again. Scotland and its importance to the future of the United Kingdom and what happens everywhere else in the islands of Britain is important. I think it comes down in its essence, though, to a sense of who do you trust? You know, Mrs Thatcher was elected because people felt she was the person who could lead through difficult times across the UK, not in Scotland, I hasten to add. Tony Blair, similarly, they had a pledge card with specific policies on education, health and the fight against crime, but it wasn't really about waiting lists or times. It was about the sense that Tony Blair's time had come and he was the right person to lead at that time. In Scotland, it's very much the same. You know, everyone can trade statistics on this and that, especially when a government's been in power for 13 years in various forms. But if you look at the polling, even as recently as today from Ipsos Murray in Scotland, you see that across pretty much all measures of trust, whether it's on run the country, lead us through COVID, deal with inequality, manage the NHS, manage the economy, manage education, on all these measures, a healthy majority for Nicola Sturgeon and the SNP. So there's something going on, and, and it, it's more than meets the eye. Obviously, the constitutional question underpins it, but for my mind, yes, handling of the crisis points to governing competence. I think increasingly, as we look to a period of reform, as we come out of COVID, in actual fact, in a time of crisis even before COVID, people were hungering for power to be closer to their daily lives. And that, by the way, shouldn't stop at Edinburgh. For Scotland, it should go more local too, but it's true of all institutions globally. The further apart you are from my real life, the less I tend to trust you. And and so there's something of that in here too. The biggest factor I'm bound to say though is 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 Brexit. I said this in the Spectator podcast the other week. And that's the biggest underlying factor. But there's no doubt helping people along is a sense of governing competence. It's amazing. Sixty percent of people who voted no in the twenty fourteen referendum think Nicola Sturgeon's done a great job handling the crisis. So there's there's something in that. And it's this sort of nascent sense of, of trust and belief because there's really, you know, with, with the vaccine and with the end of this phase of the crisis opens up a new crisis as, as, as furlough inevitably and all the life support systems inevitably come to an end. Worries for the economy, worries for the reset of the economy, worries for inequalities, worries on traversing the climate crisis, all front of mind. And, and the question emerges, you know, who do we trust with this? Who do we trust to deal with the public finances longer term? These are all questions that are, are top of mind for people. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, and it is about trust. It is about belonging. It is about, as you say, proximity. You know, for, for listeners south of the border in particular, you know, if you voted leave in the Brexit referendum and so on, there's a very good chance that some of the things that inspired you to do so are exactly the same as the, the motivations that inspire people to support Scottish independence. It is a question of sovereignty being more important than economic forecasts, certainly more important than questions of deficit or balances of trade. It is a question of where should power rest? And, you know, that was a powerful driver for the Brexit vote. And I'm not suggesting that Brexiteers and Scottish nationalists agree on everything because they don't. But the impetus for some of their views, their worldview, is broadly comparable. There is a significant overlap there. And I don't think there's anything particularly disreputable about that, even if it does annoy both parties to have it pointed out. Then sometimes they both need to be annoyed. 
And and this is a sort of tripartite problem, I think, for the United Kingdom or for unionism at present, on because you have, as Andrew rightly says, Brexit, because obviously Scotland voted to remain. Brexit is, if you like, sort of, and this is what I say in the piece, laid the foundations for this resurgence of support for independence. And then Boris Johnson and his unpopularity in Scotland and his general style, which doesn't go down well in Scotland, he sort of built the exterior walls for this resurgence of nationalism. And then COVID and the coronavirus put the roof onto it. And you put all of those three things together and, you know, it has a sort of multiplier effect as well. You know, individually, all of these are important contributors and mean that that questions about Nicola Sturgeon's domestic record, which is patchy, shall we say, put put it quite kindly, don't really apply because they're less significant than these bigger, longer term questions. You know, you put them all together and you have a massive problem for the United Kingdom and for anyone who considers themselves a unionist. And Andrew, how, how are unionists feeling about Sturgeon's buoyant position? How are unionists feeling? I imagine concerned. Who are the unionists is really an open question now because if, you know, including don't knows on the polling, support for the union is now in the 30s in Scotland on, on many of the polls. I think what Alex says is intuitively correct in terms of the motivation. People are reacting to a world of concern and mistrust and wanting power close to the people. So in the motivation, he may be correct. However, in the prospects and the prospectus, you couldn't have greater difference between Brexiteers and those of us arguing for independence. There is a risk of populism in the independence case that has to be managed and and, and defeated, in my view, because people deserve and will get the opposite of what we got with Brexit, which was no white paper, no prospectus, no nothing. They will need to be clear about what the transition plan is, honest about what the trade-offs will be, you know, there will be, we're still to find out what the border will be with Ireland and with France. That will be exactly what the border is with the European Union. That border won't come into play if we choose independence. It'll take some time for us to get into the European Union. But ultimately, that will be the destination and people will have to say to themselves, honestly, is that worth it? Is the friction or any customs friction worth the opportunities of re-entering the European Union or not? And that's quite different from how we prosecuted Brexit and where we are now four and a bit years in. There is just no doubt, however, I think, that in Nicholas, and this is, a, this is a very truthful point, and I think everyone now gets it, that in Nicholas Sturgeon, the, the case for independence is a really wonderful asset, not least because she has cut through at an international level, which the SNP have never had before. The, the European Union have to regard Scotland as a counterparty they're willing to receive. I think Nicholas Sturgeon's conduct, basically from the night of, of the morning after Brexit, right the way through has been impeccable in tone, impeccable in, in argument. Of course she has missteps along the way. And Alec, I know you you know, you you will have been through her speech to the party conference just there at the weekend, a weird conference because obviously it's all online. But what was different, and I think what's different about Nicola Sturgeon and is equivalent to some female leaders around the world, is she does human. She talks human. When she answers a question given by journalist she, she actually gives an answer she at least you know and she's oh, capable sometimes of i mean let's not get carried away here andrea i mean she does sometimes but no i mean you're right she has that connection with voters and so on she is recognizably one of us you know there are an awful lot of people who can look at nicola sturgeon in scotland and see you know if not someone they know that someone in their family then someone they know she's from a very typical background her hinterland is very typical but you know it is also the case that particularly right now certain things act in her favor structurally and so you know it doesn't actually matter 
matter if education isn't doing particularly brilliantly or if the health service isn't doing particularly brilliantly in Scotland. All that matters is that it is half a yard ahead of whatever is happening south of the border. And that obviously is even more the case when it comes to handling the coronavirus. And there have been times during this emergency where Scotland has appeared to be doing slightly better than than England, other times where, where it hasn't. But overall, the broad picture is, is comparable. You know, outcomes are often really pretty similar north and south of the border. But people in Scotland tend to judge the Scottish government and the Scottish Parliament by a lower standard or hold it to a lower standard than they apply to, to Westminster and the British government. And so therefore, so long as Nicola Sturgeon is seen to be doing just a little bit better than Boris Johnson then that is fine. That is sufficient in terms of boosting her prestige, boosting the, the prestige of the Scottish Parliament and putting her in, a, in an advantageous position. You know, if you had a a more respected, a more competent government at, in, in, in London, Nicola Sturgeon's job would be rather harder. But as it is, you know, she is able to, to both be in opposition and in power simultaneously as well. She's in power in Edinburgh, so therefore is able to take credit for all good news in Scotland but it was also in opposition at Westminster and so is therefore able to sometimes if you like pass off responsibility or blame for shortcomings elsewhere and and that is a very cute and very useful position in which to find yourself politically speaking and it is something that obviously the unionist opposition parties you know are not able to take advantage of a sort of of a structural advantage in that fashion because it simply doesn't exist for them. All I would say is it's a pretty miserable discussion if all we're doing is comparing relative underperformance across the UK. I mean, our economy this year will take twice the hit of Germany's from COVID. We will be at the bottom of the OECD rankings for performance. We're already 21st in the world on the IMF rankings. You know, the UK is on a on a, an accelerating decline and we really ought not to be comparing bad performance across across this country. We ought to be looking to how we can do so much better. I mean, that's what I, why I come from where I do in this debate. But Anyway, I congratulate once again The Spectator for another really thoughtful piece and, and for, for setting the agenda so well. Andrew and Alex, thank you so much for joining. Next, there was uproar when the government announced that it was cutting the international aid budget from 07 to 0.5% of national income. But in this week's magazine, Gilbert Greenall, a former advisor to the Development Secretary in the 1970s, says it was the right thing to do. Gilbert joins me now, along with Andrew Mitchell, Conservative MP and former International Development Secretary. Gilbert, you say in this week's issue that you agree with the government's decision to cut international aid. Why exactly do you think it is the right decision? Well, the first point I'd make is that that size is immaterial. I mean, if you just look at the Centre for Global Development's um, study on aid effectiveness, although we're in the top five or six in the world for our generosity, We've fallen 10 places in the index down to number 15. So by definition in that study, if you cut the aid budget and were more efficient, you'd be in the same place. Andrew, you've, you disagree and you've said that you think the cut is absolutely outrageous and could lead to 100,000 deaths. Why do you disagree with Gilbert? Well, I've been debating these things with my old friend Gil for, for many years. I don't agree with him. This is a, an unpleasant and mealy-mouthed cut. It comes on the back of the fact that we've already had an 11% cut in the development budget because, quite rightly, the 0.7 reflects the state of the British economy and the British economy has gone down in terms of economic success and so the 0.7 also goes down and £2.9 billion have been taken out of the budget. But you cannot cut in this way without having a massive effect and... 
the, over the last week, I've made it clear that the effect of a 30% cut on top of the already reduction in the 0.7 will, will mean that millions of girls and women don't get access to contraception, that there's probably a million girls who are expecting to go to school thanks to British philanthropy who won't be going to school, and indeed two million starving or very malnourished children will not be receiving the support. And, you know, you cannot cut a budget like this without having this effect. And what are we doing here? Every single member of the House of Commons, and I mean every single member... Apart from, apart from possibly the speaker, who, who, who is in a slightly different position, stood on a, a promise, on an election manifesto promise, to honour the 0.7 promise and uh, not cut development spending. So, you know, it is quite wrong to break that promise. And at a time of COVID, when we know very well that COVID will never be beaten here until it is beaten everywhere. It's a very wrong thing to do. And also, you know, we have the Biden White House now. Joe Biden has said he wants to revivify the international rules-based system, the UN architecture. And, you know, to make this cut just at the point when Britain is trying to explain to the world what global Britain means, when we're taking the chair of the United Nations Security Council, when we're taking the chair of the G7 nations, when we've got the COP coming up in Glasgow next year. It's a, it's a, it's a terrible error of judgment. And it's for, it's for a sum of money that is 1% of the money we are borrowing this year. So, you know, it's not going to make an enormous difference to us, but my goodness, it's going to make a difference to the poorest in the world. But, well, perhaps, I mean, why you said, Andrew, that we're, we're borrowing, I mean, one thing is to give away money we actually have. Quite another is to give away money that we've borrowed. No private householder, in fact, they are all our taxpayers, exactly that, would go into the bank, borrow money and put it, give it to the nearest charity. They would give money that they actually have, but not money that they don't have. Yes, but Gil, you know, in every single year since 1945 on that basis, we would not have had a development budget because the government has borrowed, I think, in every year since 1945. So by definition, on that logic, you wouldn't have a development budget at all. And the thing about the development budget is it's not only trying to make the world you know, safer and more prosperous in some places of deep and grinding poverty. It also makes us safer and more prosperous. But the size of the national debt is very different now than it was even 10 years ago. It's a question of degree. And I think to, the, to, to some of the earlier things that you were saying, you can refocus on the poorest people and have you a much more effective programme and achieve just the same with a smaller amount of money. I don't think... Well, you, you can't. You, unfortunately, you can't. Because, you know, if you've got money going into feeding desperate children in Karamoja or in some of the parts of the world where you have done such brilliant stuff in your career in development, if you cut that money, then by definition, you know, you're going to be less effective on the ground. And your point, I mean, I see your point about scale, but this, is what, this was the only cut that was announced in the CSR last week by the Chancellor. And as you rightly say, the, the economy is in a very parlous position. This was the only cut that was announced, and it's 1% of what we're borrowing this year. And for a rich country like ours to behave in this way, I think it's shameful, and I hope very much that the House of Commons will make the government think again. Underpinning a lot of what you're saying is there an assumption that all aid is good, but it's frankly not true. I mean, the aid is pernicious. And unless your programmes are very carefully thought through, you can do great damage. And I always give the example of old-fashioned food aid. I know that things we don't do this, hand out bags of, of food in the same way as we did 20, 30 years ago, and we go for welfare payments and all that to, to avoid the problems of this. But if you think about food aid, it's fine when the populations are starving, 
But as soon as you get away from that, you are you end in very tricky territory because you are breaking all local markets, you're destroying farmers, and you're encouraging corruption from the. Now that's a very the... good point. That's a very good point indeed, and that is why, if you remember, and you were part of our planning on all of this, we changed the way in which we did that. So, for example, reverting again to Karamoja, where the World Food Programme had been spending twenty-five dollars a year on keeping two million people out of starvation. Britain said, well, look, we will add $5 per head for a two-year period so that instead of just feeding people, what we'll do is we'll teach them irrigation. We'll make sure that they have dams and reservoirs. We'll make sure they have feeder roads and cold storage. We'll teach them how to grow plants and look after their cattle. And do you know that as a result of that measure, after a period of three years and the extra $5, of the two million people, 1.7 million had been floated off food aid. And that is good aid. You rightly say that aid can be pernicious. And I thought you were going to mention the aid to China. But remember that on the first day I got into DFID and you joined that brilliant task force under Paddy Ashdown on uh, humanitarian aid. On the first day, I said no more checks to China. And if you look on the websites of DFID, as was, you will see that from that day, there was no money spent in China. It was all spent by the Foreign Office plundering the development budget. And that is pernicious aid. That is pernicious aid. Let let me me jump in here. Even when programmes go incredibly well, they can, I can think of money spent on primary education in one country, fantastic blistering result, but it then frees up money for much more malign things for those governments to do. And there is an infantilisation of of governments. If you constantly, we jump in and pay for all their, for the the things that they should take responsibility. It's a very good point. It's a very good point. And that is why under the Conservative government, a coalition government of 2010, the partnership agreements we cut, if you remember, we cut from 43 to 26, the number of bilateral country-to-country programmes, and they were all part of a partnership precisely to stop those negative effects and to agree that if we were putting our taxpayers' money not through governments, because as, a, as by and large, as you know, we stopped that, but through NGOs or through international organisations like CAMFED, for example, which is a very brilliant educator of girls, then it had to be as part of a wider understanding of what the economic priorities were of those countries. So, so you know, you can, you can get it wrong, but you can also get it right. Right. Well, let me, let me just extend that a little bit further, because the correlation between input and output is incredibly frail. If you look, I mean, I, I gave a presentation on William Easterly's book, The White Man's Burden, came out in 2006. And he said after 50 years, 2.3 trillion had been spent on aid. And there wasn't really what we would expect to see from it. And I think that we can't expect any more that the answer to every problem is throwing huge amounts of money at it. Absolutely right. But you and I have argued about William Easterly for the last 15 years. And... What I think is really important to remember, people forget this, but if you look at the last 20 years, and you know I've been heavily involved in development for 15 of those years, you've been involved for much longer than that, but if you look at the last 20 years, actually the human condition has been hugely elevated. You know, we have been very successful at lifting people out of poverty. Now, some of that, of course, has happened in Southeast Asia. It's China, it's India, driving poverty out of their systems. But in terms of health and education, actually, you know, the international community, led by Britain throughout much of that time, has been very successful at elevating the social condition. Well, I I would say that that is exactly the point, that trade is the, the real eradicator of poverty. And... 
if you help people to trade and, and get their countries, help them get their countries into positions where they can join the global market, that's not only having infrastructure that works, it's having public health, which means the population are productive, and good educational systems. That is the driver. That's absolutely, yes. That, I mean, that, that is right. But look at the Britain has spent an enormous amount of effort and expertise and money, for example, on making sure that people across Africa can trade without having to wait, wait for weeks at borders to get across. Also, incidentally, hotbeds of HIV infection rates as well. And that sort of trade stuff is absolutely vitally important. We, all, we both of us agree on that. But in the end, you know, development is about two things. It's about stopping conflict and stopping it starting, once it started stopping it, and once it's over reconciling people, which is an area of, I know, of your particular expertise. And the other thing it's about is building prosperity, showing people that the private sector is the engine of development and not, as the left think, the enemy of development. And after all, how do people lift themselves out of poverty here as well as in the poorest parts of the world? It's by having a job. It's by being economically active. And you and I both agree on that. And the truth is, what we should celebrate is that Britain, through its academic great universities assisting in policy development through DFID, which was probably the foremost engine of development, making development happen anywhere in the world, through the brilliant NGOs, many of which you've worked with for years. Through all of that, Britain made a huge difference. And it's just as much on stopping conflict, which is development in reverse, as it is on building prosperity and economic activity. Well, it's yes, but I think it's very sad that social development rather than the hardware infrastructure support has been so neglected. But it's both, surely. Both, both have been prioritised. And if you take two, two issues, the urbanisation in, in some of the poorest countries and the parlous nature of urban water and, and public sanitation, if you want to do something which we did in our own countries in the end of the 19th century, which is improve public health, those projects to develop the hardware, the infrastructure of countries are some of the things that could do more good instead of spreading our effort really on a, on a very wide basis where we don't really master anything or have the weight or the concentration of effort and make, make these big improvements. That's why we reformed everything in 2010. We had the multilateral aid review and the bilateral aid review to make sure that we were getting value for money for taxpayers and also pursuing interests that Britain wanted pursued. And, you know, I think we may have gone backwards a bit in the last few years, but you and I were both part of the engine that drove that after 2010. And I think we can be very proud of what we achieved. Thank you, Gilbert and Andrew. Melanie McDonough argues in the magazine that conversation should be more formal, saying have a good one in an email is inappropriate and putting a full stop at the end of a sentence isn't aggressive. To make her case, Melanie joins me with Harry Mount, editor of The Oldie. Melanie, in this week's issue, you write about what you call a universal cult of niceness. Can you start by explaining what this is and why it has wound you up so much? Well, as I said in the piece... I was talking to a couple of people over the phone in a bank and I'd never encountered either of them. Neither of them was able to help me and in both occasions the conversation ended with you take care now and have a nice good one. That is to say have a nice weekend and on a weekday it would have been have a nice day 
And I thought to myself, well, you take um, the intention as it stands, and if the intention was to be friendly, that's grand. But in fact, you don't know people, you've never met them, and all of a sudden you're using the kind of exchange that you might have with a friend, somebody that you work with, or certainly somebody that you've encountered before. And it does seem to me that we're going straight to familiarity with strangers without an intermediate stage of acquaintance. So at one point you would go from formality to informality by degrees. Now it's instant informality. I was saying in the piece that in German it's fine. You've got Z as the formal form for people that you don't know and you've got Du for your friends and, and family. You don't have that in English, so it's much more a matter of tone and it's much more a matter of using various forms. And we seem to have bypassed those intermediate stages of formality now and it's seen as being somehow hostile not to be instantly matey. Harry, have you noticed this, the sort of new informality yes, yeah, creeping I agree into more, language? Uh, with Melanie's article. Actually, the supposed niceness is in fact rude. Politeness and cordiality is actually kinder. It shows more respect. And actually, if you do call someone Miss Prendergast or Mrs. McDonough, then it's up to them to say, to do a nice thing of saying, no, call me Lara, call me Melanie. It, mm. it, it then gives you the chance to be generous and kind and you've moved to a friendliness and intimacy on your intimacy on your own terms and actually politeness and formality is strangely kind i used to work in america and work in the deep south and i started calling everyone sir and ma'am because they do mm. there and actually it's a really nice habit it is it does show it actually shows respect and respect is what everybody talks about nowadays but um i'm not sure that um, very relaxed diction is particularly respectful we seem to be conflating formality with unfriendliness and it's as harry said it's just not the case and when I was growing up in Ireland, though, you had a kind of etiquette whereby you would have an exchange with, say, a shopkeeper or a business person. You'd pass the time of day. You'd never go to the cut to the chase and you would talk to them. But that was in a slightly sort of formal way. That was part of the etiquette of the exchange, whereby you'd have a conversation first. But it still remained on a, on a formal basis. And you weren't trying to pretend that you'd actually sort of gone to school with them or something. Whereas now you do have to it's as though we've got to be terribly careful lest we give offence and where there are no boundaries in terms of address as Harry says you are walking on eggshells and I find that younger people in particular are particularly susceptible to taking offence at slights that would be oblivious to everybody else. I got into terrible trouble with young one young woman when I sent her a text message in Actually, it was an email with block capitals, and for her that was um, instant aggression, sort of macro aggression, because um, you didn't do that kind of thing. I wanted to make sure that you took my point on board for it, and um, <laughs> she just said, "I'm never going to speak to you again." Effectively, did she? Did she reply on block capitals? How did she? How did she respond? Oh, she, she responded by um, saying she had never been so insulted. I mean, that was the end of it, as far as um, as she was concerned. And I, I thought that this readiness to kind of take offence going hand in hand with this kind of informality of speech, this kind of matiness, is um, a very odd phenomenon. 
because everybody's alert now to the two microaggressions, sort of um, errors in your, your speech or in your address, in your diction, which suggests disrespecting the other person. And by way of overcompensating for that, we're trying to be overly matey. But it actually doesn't reflect the nature of our relationship. Our relationship may be one of customer and provider. It may be one of superior and inferior. And it's not actually reflecting the real balance of that relationship if we try to pretend that we're on terribly friendly terms with everybody because at some point it may be that somebody's got to turn down your bid for a loan or sack you or something and in that case the matiness all of a sudden isn't appropriate anymore. Harry one of the points that Melanie makes in her piece is that there is a positive aspect to this cult of intimacy which is that it suggests a sort of new egalitarianism. Do, Do you think that's true? I don't think it does because there are always going to be huge differences between different people and different ranks and it's rather nice that the English language has grown up to reflect those differences. I work at the Oldie magazine and as the name suggests we have quite a few slightly older readers and so when I answer the phone to them I always call them Sir or Madam or if I know their name call them Mr or Mrs X knowing that that's what older people prefer and that's that's very nice and and it seems strange for people not to notice these things with different people in different ranks. There's a story I was told by somebody who taught at Prince Charles's drawing school where all the students there from all sorts of backgrounds would would meet Prince Charles once a year and the first time they met him they didn't do all the you know sirring and your royal highnessing and that sort of thing and it was strangely awkward because they were trying to get along and be matey with this famous prince and he didn't really mind but he said to the to the boss of this school he said look I don't really don't mind but next year when I come just try teaching the rules of saying hello your royal highness then sir and all that sort of stuff and she said, well, you know, some of them are from quite difficult backgrounds. I find that very difficult. But actually, she told them all that. The next year he turned back, came back. And it was much, much easier because this formality had been set up. And that's a, an unusual example. But actually, all those different forms of address throughout society, throughout different ages, hmm. have been set up for a reason. And, yeah. and people like them being used. Yes, and it does put kind of a space between you and your work persona. So if you're working in a bank, for instance, you don't have to kind of say, uh, hiya, Harry, how are you doing? You can actually um, put things on a more formal basis with, hello, Mr. Mount. And then in um, the letter exchanges, in written exchanges, insofar as we still got them, you have the dear sir and yours faithfully. And that puts a distance between you and the job that you do. Whereas when you try and personalise the relationship too much by getting on to, how are you, in the very first time you talk to somebody, then you lose that space between yourself and the job and that actually makes you in the first place it's confusing and in the second place it opens you up to real misunderstandings when the exchange doesn't go entirely amicably yes yeah and actually it goes all the other way and I've got an old very old friend from school who our exchanges when we meet each other are completely pure abuse when we first say hello or we say to each other and that's because we know each other so well and that's a form of affection but we've we've known each other for 30 years you know would you give us an example, Harry, or is it too? No, it really, is, really is unprintable, and you know the spectator would be burned down if I said. But it's because <laughs> we know each other so so well, and that and that's great. But I wouldn't do that to someone who I was meeting for the first time, or to an elderly person, or to Prince Charles. You know. Yeah, exactly. The other thing that I found is that you can't actually use a command. You can't use the imperative anymore. I was just saying to Lara before we joined you, Harry, that I was in a restaurant on, on one occasion when my friend said to the waiter, bring the bill. And the man looked as though he'd been slapped in the face.
face. He said, there's no need to be rude, because he hadn't actually said, would you mind awfully, or could you possibly, Um, and using various circumlocutions. But in fact, in a restaurant, it's perfectly appropriate for the customer to say to the waiter, bring the bill. You're not being disrespectful. It just reflects the fact that you are the customer and his job is is to serve you. And by virtue of the I think it's in the Australian style matiness, which is lovely in many ways. That actually does introduce an element of confusion. I think actually the phenomenon has come both from the United States, obviously, but also from Australia. And certainly one of the things I was talking about, the Australian uplift at the end of a sentence whereby you don't actually say anything categorical, you kind of leave it open. That, I think, is also a result of the same kind of tentativeness and the same kind of unwillingness to give any offence by being too categoric. And again, I think it's a mistake because in some situations it's necessary to be categoric and sometimes it's necessary to use commands. Sometimes it's necessary to use a kind of diction that may seem unfriendly but actually is right for what you're doing. There's a very good example of that. I wonder if this started with the, with the Princess Diana who, whatever you think of the crown, Emma Corrin, who plays her, has got her accent yes. perfect. And she yes. had this extraordinary thing, Princess Diana and Emma Corrin's got as well, of going up and then going flat at the end of the century. So she goes, why are you being so horrible to me, Charles? <laughs> and, and she does that the whole time. And it's a way of, can be when being flirtatious, of, of immediately assuming intimacy. And, yeah. and that was sort of 30 years ago. Whether, whether she sort of slightly began all that. Mm. Thank you, Melanie. And thank you, Harry. And that's it for this week. If you pick up the magazine, you can read everything we've talked about, alongside Paul Wood on why the next six weeks are so important for the Middle East, and James Ball on ID cards that prove you have immunity from coronavirus. Thanks for listening, and do join us again next week. The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher.